In Romans chapter 10, which we are going to take for our text today, we are going to look at how um, the author of our catechism in this topic of, of comfort has incorporated the teaching of law and gospel and draws upon that distinction heavily in his uh, construction of our catechism. So this is God's holy word on page 946 of our Pew Bibles. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down. Or, um, who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that is, the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written... How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And there the uh, apostle uh, writes to the Romans about the good news, this gospel, that the righteousness of God is given to us in Christ as opposed to that uh, righteousness which we seek to establish on our own uh, by the law. And that fundamental distinction, so much a part of the Protestant Reformation, is indeed uh, the backbone of our Heidelberg Catechism, which we turn to today. We will read uh, the first Lord's Day, uh, question and answer one and two from our catechism. It's found in our bulletin. It's also found in uh, the back of our Psalter hymnal on page 900 and, uh, 872. 872. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has delivered me from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, 
Christ, by his Holy Spirit, also assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. How many things must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? Three, first, how great my sin and misery are. Second, how I am delivered from all my sins and misery. Third, how I am to thank God for such deliverance. Well, as we turn to the catechism for the first time in a few years uh, this morning, um, if you're reading out of your hymnal, you see uh, one of the most important uh, starting points that we need to mark and acknowledge. In the first two questions, uh, there are references, footnote references to the scriptures that are alluded to or quoted, really woven into those questions and answers. And uh, there are almost as many scripture references as there are words in our catechism. And it's a beautiful testimony uh, to the fact that this is uh, a biblical uh, catechism that comes before us. It is a way to learn and understand how to read scripture. Well, I'm going to focus on uh, something that's maybe not directly found in this first question, but is integral to it in many ways. The title this morning is The Doctrine of the Church is Law and Gospel. Uh, that is almost a direct quote of the first line of our catechism's author, its primary author, Zacharias Ursinus is his name. His commentary, he wrote on the catechism, which was a series of theological lectures uh, to people training in divinity to be pastors so they could teach and preach from the catechism. The doctrine of the church is law and gospel. And I want to see how the question of comfort that our catechism begins with is really anchored in this distinction between law and gospel. Um, So my outline this morning is going to be, uh, first, really the title is the first point, the church doctrine consists of two parts, the law and the gospel. Second, law and gospel and how it relates to the question of comfort. And my third point is is really tied to the second question, the, the three things we must know, how these three things relate to comfort. Now, I'm not going to be talking directly about comfort. I'm going to be talking indirectly about comfort, as it were, today. But comfort is so much a part. You could really uh, preach ten sermons on this first uh, Lord's Day. I just want to read one thing that has uh, stuck in my mind. It's from this same commentary of Versinus. And he includes in that commentary a a dialogue. Uh, He says, how do we know that this comfort, Christian comfort, is alone solid? And he says, it alone never fails. Not in death, for whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And secondly, because this comfort alone remains unshaken and sustains us under all the temptations of Satan, who often assails the Christian. And then he has this dialogue. It's a wonderful dialogue. I remember reading this my senior year of college when I first picked up this book. And this is what Satan says. You are a sinner. And to this, comfort replies... Christ has satisfied for my sins and redeemed me with his precious blood. I belong to him. But you are a child of wrath and an enemy of God, Satan says. I answer, I am indeed such by nature and before my reconciliation, but I have been reconciled to God and received into his favor favor through Christ. But you shall surely die. Christ has redeemed me from the power of death. And I know that through him... 
I shall come forth from death into eternal life. But many evils in the meantime befall even the righteous. Answer, but our Lord defends and preserves us under these evils and makes us makes them work together for our good. But what if you fall from the grace of Christ? For you may sin and faint, for it is a long and difficult road to heaven. Answer, Christ has not only merited and conferred his benefits upon me, but he also continually preserves me in them and grants me perseverance that I may neither faint nor fall from his grace. But what if his grace does not extend to you and you are not of the number of those who are the Lord's? Answer, but I know that grace does extend to me and that I am Christ's because the Holy Spirit bears witness with my spirit that I am a child of God and because I have true faith. For the promise is general, extending to all who believe. But what if you have not true faith? I know I have true faith from the effects thereof. Because I have a conscience at peace with God and an earnest desire and will to believe and obey the Lord. But your faith is weak and your conversion is imperfect. Yes, it is. Nevertheless, it is true and unfeigned. And I have the blessed assurance that to him that hath shall be given. Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. And Ursinus concludes, in this most severe and dangerous conflict, which all the children of God experience, Christian consolation remains unmovable. And at length concludes, therefore Christ, with all his benefits, pertains even to me. It's that focus on Christian comfort. And you saw all the elements of this first answer were kind of woven into this dialogue. You wonder if, if maybe uh, Ursinus wrote this dialogue first and then distilled it, down, uh, to, uh, distilled it down to this question of comfort. I have true faith because Christ has redeemed me. He promises to preserve me. He sustains me. He makes me willing. All of these things he has done for me. And this is a central theme of the Reformation, this comfort and assurance. And so it's not surprising that we find it here in our catechism. What's perhaps surprising is that we find it in so few other places as clearly communicated. And I think the genius, and what I want to focus on today, is to step back a little bit and say, how does Orsinus keep comfort at the center of his teaching? We're always tempted to get off on different topics, on side trails. And again, the way he does this is by maintaining this distinction between law and gospel. So he begins his commentary on the catechism by saying, what is the doctrine of the church? What does the Christian church teach? It's a very broad question, right? And his answer is, the doctrine of the church is the entire and uncorrupted doctrine of the law and gospel concerning the true God together with his will, works, and worship, divinely revealed and comprehended in the writings of the prophets and apostles and confirmed by many miracles and divine testimonies, through which the Holy Spirit works effectually in the heart of the elect and gathers from the whole human race an everlasting church in which God is glorified both in this life and in, this, in the life to come. The doctrine of the church is law and gospel. Now, I don't know about you, but I have not really heard that claim in too many quarters of the Christian faith. I don't hear it in uh, the... Roman Catholic Church in which I grew up in. I never heard that. I never heard it in evangelical churches. I never heard it in Eastern Orthodox churches and discussions with my friends. 
And Ursinus continues. What are the parts of the doctrine of the church? You see, what he's driving at is a distinction. All uh, theology is making clear distinctions. And he says, all these subjects that are set forth in Scripture are either law or gospel. Therefore, the law and the gospel are the chief and general divisions of the Holy Scriptures. They comprise the entire doctrine comprehended therein. Now, here's an interesting claim. He continues, Christ himself makes this division of the doctrine, which he will have preached in his name. So he traces the distinction between law and gospel to the teaching of Jesus Christ. And where does he go but Luke 24, a text uh, that I cite often. Jesus on the road to Emmaus, saying, Thus it is written, And thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name. And then Ursinus uh, comments, But this, this word of Christ, embraces the entire substance of the law and the gospel. The suffering and death of Christ... And his entry into glory and the proclamation of remission, forgiveness. That's the law and gospel. And so, insofar as Christ himself is the very center of the scriptures, the substance and ground of the entire scriptures, the doctrine of the law and gospel is necessary to lead us to the knowledge of Christ. For the law is our schoolmaster. It leads us to Christ. It constrains us to fly to him by showing us our sin and misery. Therefore, we have, this is our sinus, in the law and the gospel, the whole of the scriptures comprehending the doctrine revealed from heaven for our salvation. Now, if you're a member or a regular visitor at Christ Reformed Church, you've heard this distinction before. Uh, if you're listening online or are a little bit new with us, maybe this distinction between law and gospel is new to you, new to us. So I wanted to find it a little bit more clearly. And he says there are three key differences between law and gospel. First, in the subject and general character of the doctrine that is peculiar to each. The law prescribes and enjoins what is to be done and forbids what ought to be avoided. The law is rules for living. Do this and you will live. While the gospel announces the free remission and forgiveness of our sins through and for the sake of Christ. Do this versus Christ has done this. The demands of the law, it requires something of us versus the gift of the gospel. It gives to us. And uh, the law focuses on our personal obedience, as Paul put it there in Romans, right? The righteousness of God they sought to establish as their own. That's the way of the law. The way of the gospel is the mediator for the sake of Christ. You are righteous. Our merit versus Christ's merit. So that's the first distinction. The second distinction is the manner of revelation of each. The law is known generally. It's known universally. It is known through nature. The gospel is known only through divine revelation. The gospel is foreign to us. We can never figure it out on our own. We would never come up with this solution to our sin and misery. But the law is written on our hearts. We're born with the knowledge of the law. It's hardwired into us. Um, And third, distinction. The promises, the nature of the promises. The law promises life upon the condition of perfect personal obedience. The gospel promises life on the condition of faith in Christ, who is personally, perfectly obedient on our behalf. And the commencement of new obedience.
Well, so why am I starting this series through the Catechism with so much focus on this law-gospel uh, distinction? Um, you might be saying, Pastor, I don't see anything in these first two questions about law and gospel. Why are you talking about that? Teach me about the Catechism lesson today. Um, there are a lot of topics that we could spend a lot of time on. We could talk about comfort and what it question of comfort presumes, that we need to be comforted, right? We could talk about what catechesis is. What are we doing here? Questions and answers. Seems kind of weird. We could talk about the content of this first answer. It's beautifully Trinitarian. Jesus, Father, Holy Spirit. We could talk about the relationship, and we will in a moment, of knowledge to comfort. Notice how the second question asks, what, how many things must you know? The modern world doesn't think that way about faith so much. But I'm spending uh, the precious few moments we have together on this first Lord's Day on Law and Gospel because after 15 years of ministry, it's become very, very clear to me that it is sort of the crucial and unique genius of the Heidelberg Catechism. It is almost entirely unique to the Catechism. You can find all sorts of authors in the 16th century and the 17th century talking about the distinction between law and gospel. But, but no church catechism, no church confession of faith have the insight to actually organize the teaching of Christian doctrine in the pattern of law and gospel, a structure of law and gospel. Ursinus was drawing deeply on the reformers who came before him. Calvin is a very clear distinction of law and gospel. But Calvin didn't think to build his catechism around it. He wrote a catechism of four or five hundred questions or something, a massive thing, right? Um, Ursinus also had uh, experience in the Lutheran tradition. He was a student of Melanchthon, Luther's associate. And Lutherans were particularly clear on this distinction between law and gospel. And the city of Heidelberg, the historical context in which Ursinus was commissioned by the prince, Frederick III, to write this catechism for the instruction of the people, had newly become reformed. Frederick III was a believer in the reformed faith. The predecessors in that area were Lutheran, and prior to that, of course, many people had grown up in the Roman Catholic Church. So you had a population, you had a church community that needed to learn and learn quickly what it meant to be a biblical Christian according to the Reformed pattern. And so there is a sense where Ursinus brings out one of the unique contributions of the Reformed branch of the Magisterial Reformation, which is really, as we recently saw in our Belgic Confession of Faith, not only the preaching of the Word and the sacraments, but discipline, the third use of the law. A church that is reflecting and reflective of uh, God's law in its life and in its obedience. So Ursinus' genius is brought about by these circumstances. And it contributes to the beauty and the excellence of the Heidelberg Catechism. You often hear people from Presbyterian traditions who grew up with the Westminster Stands say, I love the Heidelberg Catechism. It's so pastoral. It's so warm. You know, It has such a great focus on comfort. All of these things are true. But what they often don't grasp, I don't think, is there's a reason for that warmth. There's a reason for that pastoral focus. And it is, stems from, it flows from, its distinction between law and gospel. It frames virtually everything the catechism teaches. It is how the catechism manages to keep comfort central. It is the most difficult task, and Luther has some wonderful quotes on this, to keep your focus on the gospel. Someone always wants to say, well, okay, I've heard the gospel, now tell me how to live. Tell me what I can do. Tell me how I can be a better Christian. How can I be a, a 
you know, grade A, number one, top, top tier Christian. How can I experience the, the, the sanctified life of, of David and Abraham? You know, well, you can go commit some heinous sins. That's one way, right? And then be forgiven. Law and gospel keeps our focus and reminds us that we need to hear the gospel every week, every day. And tragically, another reason I'm spending a little bit of time on this this morning is this part of our heritage is under attack. If you talk about law and gospel, a lot of say you're talking like a Lutheran. No, no, no. The whole point of the Heidelberg Catechism is that it has the third use of law. And that's more important than the distinction between law and gospel. But you notice what Ursinus did, did. He didn't say, look, we have the first use of the law and the gospel and the third use of the law. And look at the third use of the law. No, he says all of Christian doctrine is law and gospel. Now you need to make a second distinction and understand that the law has different uses. <laughs> all of good theology is making healthy distinctions and proper distinctions. But Ursinus herself, himself, the catechism and his commentary on the catechism is the clearest, most objective proof that this law-gospel distinction is as central to the Reformed faith as it is to the Lutheran faith. Now, there's a greater maturity, yes, I will say, in the Reformed tradition. Uh, as the century passed, the 16th century, the church wrestled with some issues. And I think there's greater clarity in the threefold knowledge, guilt, grace, and gratitude. But still, the fundamental structure is law and gospel. There's a lot of Christian tradition. There are a lot of Reformed traditions that seek to silence this. We've spoke a little bit in our last series about the federal vision. The federal vision explicitly says that you enter the covenant of God by grace, but you stay in by obedience. That destroys the law of gospel distinction. You enter by grace and you stay in by grace. <laughs> and so this is a key distinction, and there are many people today who oppose this. Now, there's a fascinating conclusion to this uh, introductory comments about law and gospel that Ursinus offers. He says, there are three various methods of teaching and learning the doctrine of the church. And, and this is for you. I'm looking out at some, some young ones, some parents. There are three methods in teaching and learning the doctrine of the church. The first is catechesis. He gives catechesis pride of place because it's for everyone. Everyone needs to be catechized. And the second place is uh, what he calls the commonplaces, loci communes. This is the way of doing dogmatic theology, going topic by topic. And that's more for uh, professional, pastoral you know, leaders in the church. But the third way of teaching and learning the doctrine of the church, catechesis and then systematic or dogmatic theology, the third way is reading your Bible. <laughs> now, he has a full sense of reading the Bible. He means preaching, reading and expounding the Word of God. But this goes for individual readers of the Bible. And he says, listen closely. Why? Why are you introducing your catechism, Pastor? This is what the author of our catechism says. Reading scripture is the highest method in the study of the doctrine of the church. Catechesis is first. It has that primary role. But reading scripture is the highest method. To attain this, the former two methods are to be studied that we may be well prepared for the reading, understanding, and exposition of the Holy Scriptures. For as the doctrine of the catechism and commonplaces is taken out of the Scriptures and are directed by them as their rules, so they again lead us back to the Scriptures. In other words, if you want to read the Bible for profit, brothers and sisters, you must be well catechized. He has another quote uh, where he says... Those who are well catechized can truly understand sermons. Those who aren't will struggle. And part of this catechesis, part of this distinction between law and gospel, is to walk out of a sermon. You should walk out of Luke's sermon this morning and say, Was that law or gospel? 
And which part was which? What part condemned me? What part gave me hope and life? What part stated God's demands and holiness? What part offered the blessings and promises of Christ? This distinction is a useful tool. So, I want to pivot. Time is short. The second broad point of my outline. Law and gospel and the question of comfort. I've already said a lot of this, so uh, it's a bit redundant. But but comfort, assurance, is really the key insight of the Protestant Reformation. This is hard to convey how much the day-to-day spirituality of a medieval Catholic was about terrifying people that they might slip away from the church into the fires of hell. Sacramental grace was viewed as a substance that was poured into a leaky bucket. And you had to plug as many holes in the bucket and refill the bucket as often as possible to make sure that you had enough sacramental grace, uh, kind of like, like a bucket of water, to get through the fires of purgatory and make it to heaven. It was terror, not comfort, not peace. And Luther's great insight was, uh, reading Romans, uh, it was the insight of law and gospel. He read Romans 1.17, and he read Paul writing, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. And Luther was terrified his whole life because he said, God's righteousness is revealed. God's holiness? How holy I have to be to, to live with God in His presence? But his breakthrough was, oh, he's talking about the righteousness. He goes to chapter 10, the righteousness that is given to me. It's not the righteousness that God demands. It's the righteousness that he gives. And the medieval church had said, yes, it's revealed by faith, but it has to be a faith that's formed and shaped by love. It has to be an obedient faith. Have you been obedient enough to receive the righteousness of God? Christian comfort comes from a proper distinction between law and gospel. And it comes from no other place. You need to have this clear distinction which the apostle invokes in in Romans chapter 10. And we get to the third part of the catechism, to the part about gratitude. It's not a new law. You're not back under a covenant of works, brothers and sisters. You're still in the covenant of grace. This is evidence, fruitfulness of God's gift of His Holy Spirit to you. The catechism isn't only introduced by this question of comfort and comes back to it, but it's structured by it. In all the history of the church, the contents of the catechism have almost always been the same. The creed, the Decalogue, and the Lord's Prayer. The creed, Ten Commandments, and the Lord's Prayer. And what Ursinus's genius was, was saying and structuring and putting these into three compartments, three parts. Law, gospel, guilt, grace, gratitude. And this is unique to Reformed Christianity. This is unique to all Heidelberg Catechism. The framework is law and gospel. It keeps us anchored in the comfort, the question of comfort. Not just by coming back to it, by being structured and built that way. So you always need to be asking your parents, as you teach this to your children, you always need to be asking, where are we in the catechism? How does this lead me back to Christ? How does this point me to His gifts and to the comfort and peace I have in Christ? Again, explicitly so, the medieval church put our response of gratitude before God's grace. Have you done enough to be blessed with forgiveness, ultimate life, eternal? And the genius of Scripture and the genius of the Reformation was life eternal is given us in Christ. And our response is a response of obedience that flows from gratitude. Um, so, this is sort of like, uh, uh, if you are 
involved at all or have been involved in the world of classical Christian education, sometimes they go back to the trivia. Uh, Grammar, logic, and rhetoric. The grammar is the stuff we learn. Memorization. Every Christian should know the ABCs of the Christian faith, which would be the Creed, the Ten Commandments, and the Lord's Prayer. Um, It's a good test. Sometimes I'm not very quick on uh, memorizing the Ten Commandments. Sit down over evening uh, meal some night and, and run through the Ten Commandments. Use it as a a mechanism of confessing your sin. These are the ABCs of the Christian faith. But the logic of the Christian faith is how these fit together. How these point us to Christ. And that's what the catechism does. It gives us not only the grammar, but the logic and finally the rhetoric. The prayer, the worship, the life of the believer as they articulate this praise. And we'll be able to, of necessity, get to this when we get to the third part. But this transition to how gratitude, how the third use of the law relates to the first use of the law. The first use condemns us. And the third use, after we've been uh, forgiven by Christ, shows us how then we shall live. How it doesn't go back and condemn us again. Is so key. And, and let me just read quickly from uh, question 86, which introduces this third section. Since we have been delivered from our misery by grace. You see there the first two parts. Law, gospel, misery, by grace, through Christ, without any merit of our own. Couldn't be any more clear. We had nothing to do with it. Why then should we do good works? What's the place of good works in the Christian life? And the answer is so important, brothers and sisters. Because Christ, having redeemed us by His blood, is also renewing us by His Spirit into His image. In other words, He saved us for holiness. That's the, that's the answer. But then He gives four reasons for why that holiness is important. So that, with our whole lives, we may show that we are thankful. Gratitude is appropriate. So that God might be praised through us. Praising God is appropriate for His work of creation and redemption. And further, so that we may be assured of our faith by its fruits. That's a uniquely reformed move there, brothers and sisters. The comfort comes from us seeing the gospel working itself out in our life. That's not the foundation of our comfort. I don't look at my good works and say, oh, I'm such a good Christian. You know, pat ourselves on the back. That leads us back to Christ. We are assured of Christ's work in us because our faith bears fruit, even small, tiny fruit, as the catechism will be very clear. And that finally, by our godly living, our neighbors will be won over to Christ. So, the third use of the law doesn't drive us back to fear and terror and dread, but it gives us more comfort and assurance. In the next century, the 17th century, Puritanism will emphasize this more and more and more. Some strains of Puritanism. And the church will get into some trouble by saying... Can I really have comfort? Am I really having enough fruit in my life? And the Christian life becomes a life of fruit inspection. And uh, it's not a lot of fun. Well, I have like three sermons worth of material. So the last point is simply have to be this. This comfort comes from knowing three things. There's two things radically uh, countercultural about that. That faith derives its power and strength from knowledge. That knowledge is a component, not the entirety, but a component of faith. In the last couple hundred years of Christian teaching and uh, post-enlightenment thought has undermined this truth, right? Faith is a feeling. Faith is an emotion. Faith is a paradox. Faith is a, a sense of dependence upon God. A force of will. And has removed that knowledge component. So that's the first thing. But the second thing, important. Yes, knowledge does 
undergird and support our faith. But the third, or the second thing that's very important about this is, notice the question is, what must you know? It's how many things must you know? How many things? Again, driving at and reestablishing the importance of distinction. (laughs) We don't need to know just one thing. A lot of people say, you know, God is love. The Christian life is all about grace. You know, being a believer is just, it's all about faith. You could reduce Christianity to one word, right? And we say, no, we can't do that. (laughs) God is just and merciful. Our Belgic confession is founded upon that same distinction. It's the law gospel distinction in our Belgic confession of faith. We saw it there. God is just and merciful, and he reveals himself as both. Perfectly just and perfectly merciful. And even in his perfect mercy, he doesn't let go of his justice because he fulfills it in Christ. So, we must know a number of things. Three things. Guilt, grace, and gratitude. And when you think of the Christian life through this lens, it will be a life of unsurpassed comfort and assurance and peace. Uh, Let's close in prayer. Merciful God and Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have abided with the church through your Holy Spirit, that your presence has been with us with great teachers. We thank you for uh, the recovery of biblical teaching, the recovery of Scripture in the New Testament, and the message of Paul, the message of the prophets, the message of the saints of old in the time of the Reformation. We thank you that that teaching has been uh, written down and anchored for us in a catechism, a tool that we can use to teach our children and to teach ourselves and to teach the church that... Christ is supreme, that Christ is the center of Scripture, scripture, and that His suffering and glory and the remission of sins that He proclaims through the Gospel is the good news that we need this comfort each and every day as sinners till He returns on that day of perfection. We praise Your holy name. Amen.